0: While they are doing that, I want to have a uh, little, little fun and uh, do a little instruction on our Bibles for a second. If you've got your Bibles there, and you uh, should have these notes <clears throat> on the table there for you uh, for our reading today, I uh, want to ask you to get out your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings 5 verse 26. Do you find 1 Kings five twenty six? In your ESV Bible? It's not there, is it? <laughs> well, you'll notice at the top of your reading, on your notes, it's 1 Kings 5.26. This is where I want to show you something um, in your Bibles, <clears throat> that uh, the numbering system that is in the Hebrew Bible is not going to be the same all the time uh, as you have it in, I'm going to use this phrase, in our, if you will, Christian Bibles. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, so, so that you can see this, if you're in First Kings chapter 5, unless you have uh, a different Bible. Now, Zach, you've got your uh, The Tree of Life Bible, and it'll have it in there. Uh, if you've got uh, the Scriptures Bible, it'll be that way. If you've got this one that is the complete Jewish Bible, it'll be the right numbering. And I want to show you a few things uh, in here. But if you've just got uh, a Bible and you can't find it, if you would go to 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 12, verse 12 is actually... Uh, In the Hebrew Bible, it's 26. In other words, when they divide up these chapters, it's not always the same. And part of that reasoning is because they're going with these thoughts, um, their their groupings of the passages are sometimes just going to be different. Uh, So don't think, oh, no, my Bible's wrong. It's just the numbering system. And those numbers help us uh, find things. uh, And it's usually divided up according to uh, different thoughts and different, uh, different ways that it's laid out in the Scripture. And of course, obviously, depending on how you're, you're reading that. Anyhow, so in the Hebrew Bible, it'll have, um, in, uh, first, in ours, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12 would be First Corinthians 5 verse 26. All that's really telling you is that chapter 5 in the Hebrew Bible starts farther back. Does that make sense? Um, if you've got the Jewish, uh, the complete Jewish Bible, oh, I should have marked it because they're also usually not always in the same order. Does anybody here have this Bible with you? You do? Are you there? Okay, you'll notice then um, it's got smaller numbers in parentheses. That's to tell you that in the English Bible, that's where it would be. Or in the Christian Bible, that's where it would be. Uh, And then this one is just laid out. This way. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is in our notes today, all I'm doing is I'm writing down what the Torah portion is and the passages. And I didn't catch it when I wrote this, just to put a note on here for you. Oh, by the way, if you have an ESV Bible or a King James Bible or a nearly inspired version NIV Bible, sorry, um, it, the number's going to be different, okay? So, it's, your Bible's fine, it's just the numbering system's going to be a little bit different. Does that make sense? Now, in my ESV Bible, um, there is... When you get over into chapter 4, and you go to verse 21, if you have an ESV... You'll notice next to the 21, there's a small number 1. You follow that down to the bottom of your page, which is your footnotes, and here's what it says. Chapter 5, verse 1 in Hebrew. So they're telling you, you just got to look real close and go, where's that little 1 there? And if you don't, most of us are not really looking at the numbers when we're reading, right? So it can just catch you off guard. Anyways, you can find it. It's just that when you get into it and you read some of the, you run across some of these and you go, what is, my Bible doesn't have 1 Kings 5, 26. Where are those verses? It's not always like that. Does that make sense? Anyways, enough of that. God bless you. Glad that you're here today. We're going to study this uh, Teruma. We're going to start in Exodus 25, uh, starting with verse 1. And there's obviously some very, very fascinating things in here in the Word of God. So what we find here in the very first verse, as uh, Miss Susan was already helping us with our children's time, it says, uh, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. So this section that we're reading (coughs) is entitled The Contribution or Gift or Dedication Uh, It's the prominent theme in here, if you will, that starts this section off. And there's a couple of things in here that I do want you to pay attention to. One, Ms. Susan already helped us see that, was he said, I want this to come from the people whose hearts move them. In other words, this was not a mandated offering. This wasn't a command. You have to give and you have to give so much. He said, you're to receive this from the people as their heart moves them. The other thing that I want you to see here is in verse 2. It says, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. It doesn't say, speak to the people so that they will give to me a contribution. In other words, the sentence structure here is a little bit odd. Um, And... The theory behind this when you get into reading the commentaries and the Jewish commentaries um, is this idea that when they, when they were giving this back, they needed to remember, number one, everything that they have is what they brought out of Egypt that God gave them when they took the spoils of Egypt. But it's beyond that. In other words, our first thought is, well, everything that we have really belongs to the Lord, so we're really given to God what he already owns anyhow. It's bigger than that because it says, take for me a contribution. And the Hebrew sages say that what that's really saying is that they are taking something and giving it to God, but God is going to give it back in a sense. Remember we've talked about measure for measure? This is where you're going to see this in the positive vein, if you will. If you go to your next verse in here that I've pulled up is... Luke 6, 38, is where Yeshua is talking about this. and He's talking about when we're giving and we're sharing and we're helping. It says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it uh, will be the measure back to you. Uh, There's some other verses in here that uh, show it as well. In Proverbs 19, verse 17... It says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. Lends back to Yahovah Himself and He will repay him for his deed. Um, so it's this idea that when we're giving something to God, when we're giving a tithe, we're giving an offering, we're giving of our time, we're being good, if you will, according to His Word, <clears throat> it's like lending to the Lord because you're going to get back. That old thing, you know, you reap what you sow. When we talked about that measure for measure and God's judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt and all, all that stuff that we discussed. <clears throat> well, now we're seeing it on the positive side as well, where God's saying, just do these things. It's going to be good for you. And I want to bless you. You're going to see this, um, this same concept coming from this, this part of Scripture where the Apostle Paul is talking about giving. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, it says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Does that sound familiar? We just read it in Exodus 25. And he goes, Not reluctantly under compulsion. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. This is where... Paul was going around taking up an offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem that were suffering because of the persecution. Uh, and he's telling them, he said, you know, look, I'm going to come and everybody needs to, you know, give their offering. He says, but look, you need to give as God has stirred your heart. You need to give as you've decided within your own heart what you want to give towards this and don't do it, you know, uh, you know, reluctantly or, or under compulsion, you God loves it when you're excited that you can give. Um, the idea here is that sometimes we give, but we also um well don't want to. <laughs> you ever thought of that? You know, it's like um you have some money in your pocket and somebody needs help and you pull it out and all you've got's a 50. And you go. That's going to (laughs) hurt. You know, it's like, I wish I had, you know, and you're you're digging in there going, I got to have a ten in there somewhere and you can't find it. Um, Well, now you're having second thoughts and you're giving, but you're giving reluctantly. And God wants you to give, but to give cheerfully. Um, And when we do that, God's going to bless you. That doesn't always mean he's going to bless you with money. You have to be clear about that. Um, that prosperity gospel is garbage. Um, God will bless you, but the greatest blessing is growing closer to Yahovah Himself. Amen? Uh, More than money. You realize money is the paper you have in your wallet if you're even carrying it anymore. It used to be um, based on gold. It's not even based on gold anymore. And even if it's based on gold, you need to understand something. That's nothing more than refined dirt. It's dirt. It's metals that we think are valuable. And in heaven, it's pavement. <laughs> so uh, we get too caught up in all of these things. Let's go on here. In verses 3 through 9, it says, And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins, skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for the setting, for the ephod, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture you shall make it. Let's talk about this just for a second. Here's where we're seeing where God says these are all the things that I want you to take up from the people so that you can build a sanctuary, a tabernacle for me and... uh, I want you to see something here in verse 8 before we get into those items. In verse 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. I want you to notice something here. He doesn't say, I want you to make me a sanctuary so that I can dwell in it. He says, I want you to do this so that you can make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. Among my people. God doesn't need a building. The idea was, I need you to do this so that I can dwell among my people. This be, is going to become really important as we march through this, these passages because I want you to see something and understand something in this whole sacrificial system and everything and what is really going on. And he tells us Plainly, It's just that we've got these dumb filters. We read over the passages with mental pictures, not really slowing down and listening to what the words actually say. And so he says, I want you to build me this sanctuary. It's called a mishkan. We'll get into that in a second, which is really fascinating. But he says, so that in order that I may dwell among my people in their midst. God wants to be with us. He's trying to get us back to the garden. Amen? So before we talk about this word in the Mishkan, there's two other things I want you to see here. He says, I want you to take up all these things. We have to remember now, where are they? They're at the bottom of Mount Sinai out in the wilderness. Where'd all this stuff come from? Simple question. Now, the gold and the silver, probably even a lot of the stones, in other words, jewelry, stones, um, linen, cloth, and stuff like that, and the animals, I can see all that coming out of the spoils of Egypt. But he talks about stuff like acacia wood, oil for the lamps and spices, For the anointing oil and fragrant incense, acacia wood. He's going to tell them to build this tabernacle and just the columns alone are about two foot square. And I forget how tall. That's a lot of wood. I'm going to tell you, I don't know where it came from. (laughs) Nobody knows. Uh, Did they go and trade for it? Maybe. Did they, you know, go and get it somehow? They got it somehow. Did God dump it like he's going to do with the manna? He could. He could have. Uh, But the thought is that they had this and they had access to it uh, and that this is what God asked them to bring. Um, and they did bring it, and they brought it cheerfully. They were excited. Why would they be so excited? This is like, okay, we're going to become a nation, and now we're going to build, if you will, our capital. We're going to build a house for our king. We're going to build, if you think of it as America, we're going to build Washington, D.C. Everybody bring what you can because we're going to build this, and this is where we're going to rule and reign this country from, they're a mobile now nation where before they were not a nation. Remember, they were from Jacob and had 12 tribes, 12 brothers, and now they've got all these people and they come out in a mixed multitude and they're birthed overnight as a nation where before they were not a nation. Now they've gone through the Red Sea, they've gone through this other stuff, they've seen and heard God, they've heard... The, the Ten Commandments, if you will, spoken to them, sounded like the shofar. They're all scared to death. Moses, you go talk to him. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders go up on the mountain and have a meal with God. And now he's like, okay, now you're going you're gonna to build me this tabernacle. And they're, they're like, okay, this is, really, is going to be really cool. So when they do, when they do bring it, they do bring it cheerfully. But you have to also remember, when this is happening, Moses is still up on the mountain. When he's being told these things, he's still up on the mountain. And you also have to remember the golden calf issue hasn't happened yet. Ouch. Um, And then he says something else and he says in verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Now, I'm just going to say this real briefly because we don't have time to chase this this morning. But you've heard me mention this a number of times, how that the, the, the rabbis... The Sanhedrin, Pharisees, Sadducees, and such uh, believed in, still believe in what's called the oral Torah. You follow me because we've, we've mentioned that here? This is one of those areas where they go, Well, you see, this isn't. Moses heard a lot of things and saw a lot of things that weren't necessarily written down. And here's where he's saying this is exactly as I'm going to show you. And then later he goes, Exactly according to the pattern that I showed you. So while he's up on the mountain, God shows him a pattern and a picture of the heavenly things. He also tells him, this is how you're to write it down. But he also gave Moses a picture where he could also see it and go back and go, this is how this is going to look. He's like the general contractor. He's like, this is how it's going to work. And when anybody had a question, Moses was able to remember he saw the picture. He's like, this is how it's supposed to look. Oh, okay. Okay. So there would have been no question. And so this is where one of these areas where they do believe in and there was some kind of oral communication between God and Moses that is not written down. So before you go off and think, you know, well, they believe in this oral Torah and that's just a bunch of garbage, da-da-da, and that's, you know, not so quick. That's all I'm trying to get you to see right now. And so don't be too quick to be judgmental about that. I would say unless it contradicts what the written Word of God says. Amen? Is that good? Um, all right. So then, <clears throat> he says um, you're to make this sanctuary or this tabernacle. Now, this is I've got these notes in here for you because this is really fascinating because it's this Hebrew word mishkan, which is translated temple. Or put add on your notes there because I really should have done this and I didn't. Uh, tabernacle. Um. And it's from the root word Shekinah, which means to dwell or rest. All right? And this is where we get the word, watch this, Shekinah. Does that sound familiar? The Shekinah glory of God. And this is used to describe, watch this, the resting, the settling down and resting of the physical manifestation of the glory of God here on earth. And so, what God is saying is, I want you to build me this mishkan, this place where I will come and rest, dwell among my people. So, the other idea in this, in understanding this, <clears throat> is that God is telling them, I want you, you're going to build this tabernacle, and it's a place where I can come and rest, and a place where you're going to rest, and we're going to dwell together, because watch this God is always taking. The chaos and bringing it into order. Always. Out of nothing, He created everything. When it was formless and void and, if you will, chaotic, He forms it all together to become the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, and everything, and then puts us on it and puts it all in order. Sin comes, there's chaos and then God is in the process you can see this all through scripture where he's taking the chaos and bringing it back to order he took the chaos uh, that was going on in Egypt and then is now bringing Israel out and bringing them out in order God has a he's a a God of order he's not a God of chaos amen and so when he tells him he says this is how you're going to build it I'm even going to tell you how to build the rings and how many rings and how to attach the curtains so that you need to know that when you, the place he's going to dwell, he has specifics and the way we come before him, he is specific and we're going to see again why and it's absolutely fascinating. So we don't come before God just kind of willy-nilly however we want to, amen, that could cost you your life. We already looked at that. We got ahead of ourselves with Nadab and Abihu. When they were coming before God, they were bringing fire, like he, you know, like he said, sort of, and they died for it. Just because you have a spiritual experience doesn't mean you can come before God just however you want to. You can even physically see Him, but you still come before Him according to His pattern. There's no variation. Amen? Um... I've got a picture for you of the tabernacle. Um, It would have looked something like this. And I chose this particular one because it shows the tribes uh, around the tabernacle. And God was even specific on where those tribes were to be encamped around the tabernacle. You didn't just camp anywhere you wanted to. You stayed together and you were told to be on the north side or the south side, the east side or the west side. And it was all laid out and very specific. And I just thought that was pretty cool. Uh, and just kind of give you an idea. And there they are in their tents. Uh, the next thing I want us to talk about, because this is where we are going to spend the bulk of our time, is where God tells them about building them the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, I've got a picture of the Ark. Um, <laughs> this is... It may be what it looked like, but uh, realistically, the, it looks, if you really study it out, it seems like the, the poles, the staves, would have actually gone the other direction, but that's no big deal. I wanted you to see this one to remind you that this ark, <clears throat> and he tells them how to build it, he's going to tell Moses, you're to put the covenant, the witness, um, the articles, the Ten Commandments, if you will, inside the ark. Later on, as we continue to study, and we'll go through the book of Deuteronomy and everything, we'll find out what ends up in there is a jar with the manna in it and this rod that was Aaron's rod that budded. And so those are the items that were put into the ark. And I just wanted you to see that, to remind you of that, and give you a a picture of that. Let's look at this passage in uh, Exodus 25, verses 10 through 11. It says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. Shall you overlay it and you shall make, it, uh, make on it a molding of gold around it. I want to stop here for a second. <clears throat> this ark uh, is made out of acacia wood and I want you to notice <clears throat> they're going to build the tabernacle where God is going to dwell among them. When God starts giving Moses what to build, he starts with the most important item on the, in the middle of the Holy of... He's starting from the heart at working out, which is exactly what he does with what? Us. And we are what? According to the New Testament... We are being built together as a spiritual house, a tabernacle unto God, as what? Living stones. And, but God starts with what? He starts with the heart and work out. Same thing when he said they are to give, work it out according to what's in the heart. What's in the heart is revealed by what comes out of our mouth, Right? All of that is all interconnected. And so the interesting thing here is he starts off with the most important item. And it's the the thing that is in the Holy of Holies. And he tells Moses later, he goes, this is the place where I'm going to meet with you. This is the place where I'm going to speak to you from in between the cherubim on top of the ark. It's what's called the mercy seat. The interesting thing is that he tells him, he goes, and you're going to put the covenant or the witness Inside it. I want to tell you, mention here that this ark has many names. The three most prominent names for this uh, item. If you pull that back up, Matt. Uh, the three most prominent names for this piece of furniture, if you will, is either the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Witness, or testimony, or the ark of God. It sometimes is even called the ark of the Lord of hosts. You might ask yourself, so why is it called the ark of the covenant, or the ark of testimony, or even the ark of witness? Why would it be called that? What's interesting is we have to remember these 10 commandments and eventually Moses takes everything he wrote and he puts in here. But these Ten Commandments are, it's a legal document. We forget that. We think of it as, well, it's just the Ten Commandments, and God said, this is what you're supposed to put, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. But we have to remember, when they were at the bottom of Mount Sinai and God spoke to them, they all said, you know, okay, we, Moses said, this is what he's saying, and they go, Everything God said we will do, they moved into a marriage contract and also uh, a binding legal contract with God. It was like a treaty. When you get into studying uh, Middle Eastern, Mesopotamian history, what's fascinating is that when you would go into a treaty with another country and another king, and if you served under that king, in other words, You had a superior king and you were making a treaty with that king uh, so that he would come and save you if you were attacked by a larger country. And there would be what? A contract written out. Not unlike contracts we have today where the parties are mentioned. Then the stipulations to the treaty or contract are laid out with what? The blessings and the cursings. If you do this, then this. If you do this, then I'll do that. Here's what we're going to do. And they would then take this document, sign it or whatever, and they would take it back to their countries. Here's what's fascinating. Many times what these kings would do is they would take it and place it in a box or a container of some kind at the foot of their prominent God. And every year they would re read it because they swore a contract and they were dependent on, watch this, their God to defend them. So they would put it at the feet of their God so that if the other king broke contract, they and their God would make the contract uh, come due. You following that? So this Ark of the Covenant, God says, I'm going to be in the middle. I'm going to come. This Top is going to be called like the mercy seat. These cherubim around it with their wings going towards one another. And I will be right here in the middle. And that's where I'm going to come and talk with you. God's not borrowing just their practices. He's making a statement. Now watch this. This is what's fascinating. There's two tablets in there. They're written on both sides. There's only ten commandments. You know, Charlton Heston, you know. You know, you got, I don't know if it was really that big, but There's two tablets in there. We always kind of think of the two tablets. The two tablets have the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments, those tablets were written front and back. Then why two tablets? One is for God. One was for us. It's the ark of witness, the ark of testimony. You following me? But we, Israel, only have one God, and God is God, and so they're both at His feet because He's the final judge. Should this get broken, He's the one that's going to make it right. You following that? Isn't that fascinating? Because it's a legal, you can't, we have to remember this, it's a legal document. When he said, this is what I'm saying to you. I'm the Lord your God that brought you up out of Egypt. You're to have no other gods before me. You know, don't lie, cheat, steal, and all that other stuff, you know. Um, And they said, we'll do it. Legal. Now let's write it out. And then we're going to put it in here. And we're going to ratify it. This is why every year, the priests were supposed to go out and every year read the Torah to the people in their hearing and they were supposed to re-ratify it every year. They were supposed to listen to it and then say, exactly, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to live by. That's the original contract. This is also why the Hebrew kings were supposed to hand write out their own version of the Torah and they were to read it and keep it with them constantly so they wouldn't break covenant. They never did it. Duh. And look what happens. And they weren't supposed to pay a scribe to write it. They were to hand write it themselves which meant they had to be meticulous about it. Because um, God knows our heart, and we're just so stubborn. But this gets really cool. In, verse 20, in chapter 25, verses 21 through 22, it says, And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, <clears throat> and in the ark you shall put the testimony. Interesting. You shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this testimony is this legal document. It's placed at his feet. Now, here's where I want you to see something fascinating, because we need to chase this issue of the ark itself. It's really, really cool. And it will help you understand, watch this, we're going to see it right here dealing with the ark and what God starts to tell them. I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in Leviticus, but it'll help us see because we need to understand the sacrificial system. We, we still have a tendency to think all those Old Testament saints were saved by the sacrifices. All those sacrifices forgave their sins and they got it forgiven once a year. That is not what we see in Scripture. Scripture. It's it's let's just look at this in Leviticus 16 verses 14 through 16. This is where he's going to talk about what's supposed to happen after the ark is built. uh, The 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 Mishkan, the the tabernacle is built uh, and this is what he's supposed to do. It says in verse 14 and he shall take some of the blood from the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And on the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil to do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Look at this. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place. You just gotta, we just got to slow down when we read our Bibles. He goes. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Did you see that? So what is he saying here? He said you're supposed to take this blood of the bull which is for you and your household, the high priest. They were to do this on Yom Kippur once a year. They were supposed to go in there and they were supposed to put this blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Testimony. You following me? Why? Because of the uncleanness of the people. Because God was dwelling in their midst. And because He was purifying the place and the furniture and the stuff and everything man touched. You following me? It was also a ratification of this, if you think of it this way, this treaty, this contract. And God God says, you're going to do it, and you're going to sprinkle it on here because sin brings death. You guys aren't right yet. I'm still in the process of bringing your chaos into order. You following with me on that? Let's go into the New Testament because when you understand that, this is where the book of Hebrews and these comments in the book of Hebrews will actually make sense. When you understand it and you read it in context and then make this connection. Look at this in Hebrews 9, verses 20 through 24, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And you need to note something that this is where he's, this quote is from Exodus 24, verse 8. That we just got through studying last week. Um, He says, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, look at this, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Did you see that? What did he say? Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. He's talking about the stuff in the tabernacle, the stuff where God, it, where we are commanded to come before Him and worship Him. And he goes, There cannot be the forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. <clears throat> He's talking about you can't come in here without this stuff being purified. When you touch it, it becomes unclean. And the only, we have to keep this, think of it this way as sacred space. I've told many of you here uh, the book by Michael Heiser, The Unseen Realm, is fabulous. really covers this stuff in great detail. It is a heavy book, but it is well worth reading. it help you understand this whole sacrificial system. And then he goes, it's, it's this... Um, He's purifying all this stuff with the blood and the, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And look at this verse 23. He says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. You have to read this slowly. He says, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with all of these rites. He's talking about the tabernacle and the temple and the shovels and the bowls and the basins and the altar and the Ark of the Covenant and everything that man touched in there in the temple area that it needed to be purified with blood because we are sinful. You following that? And we were called to go before him and worship him three times a year in what are called these pilgrimage feasts. <clears throat> Um, and this was to happen on a regular basis. So it says, uh, these, through these rites, it says, But the heavenly things themselves were the better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Oh, my goodness. We need to understand what's happening here. Number one... When we are still in our physical state and unregenerated, in other words, we don't have our regenerated new body where everything's been purified and everything's been fixed. You following me? Uh, There are all these earthly things that need to happen, and when we come before God, there's the necessity when God was physically present, following me? While He's physically present... All these sacrifices had to be made to keep the space pure so that he could reside there. But now, Jesus dies for us. Yeshua dies for us. And what does he do? He goes into the real heavenly throne. And he presents himself there saying, my blood is sufficient for all of this. Watch this. For eternity. You following that? Two separate realities. One is in heaven after we die, after we get our regenerated bodies, we're in paradise with God forever, You know all that kind of stuff. That's where the blood of Jesus has purified all that so that now we can come before him and there's no longer a need for constant sacrifices because his was, his was sufficient. Following that, but in the heaven, in, in the earthly, with God dwelling physically, there still needs to be these sacrifices to keep the space purified, right? Folks, that's why there will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom because Jesus will be reigning and ruling on the earth physically. And mankind will be called and responsible physically to come before Him. Some of them without regenerated bodies because the earth will be repopulated over a thousand year period. So there's going to be sacrifices. You see where this now makes sense? So that what I'm trying to help us see is that we've got to get it out of our head that all those Old Testament saints were saved by sacrifices. And now us New Testament saints were saved by Jesus. We were always saved by faith through grace. Amen? Always. That's why when you get into Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, talking about all these Old Testament saints, Abraham and all these guys, they had faith and it was reckoned unto them as righteousness. Two separate things. Salvation always comes by faith in God. But then when we have faith in Him and we're walking with Him, He goes, I've got rules. I have rules, I have standards, and when you're going to come before me, you might want to follow my rules because if you don't, it could cost you your life. Does that make sense? Um, In other words, we see things like when we talked about Nadab and Abihu, and I know I keep talking about that, but... We have a tendency to think too superficially and think, well, Nadab and Abihu, they were just idiots and they did something wrong and they got killed and I guess they're in hell. All we know is that they did it wrong and physically died. It's nothing to do with their eternal salvation. You following me? They just did it wrong and it cost them their life. Um. We could be doing the same things today. If these end time events unfold and you and I are alive to see that happen, I would just suggest that we should follow God's pattern or else it could cost us our life. It's just that simple. Won't necessarily change your eternal abode, but it might change your placement because of obedience or disobedience. Does that make sense? we have to start thinking more deeply about what the Word of God actually says. Let's jump back down into this um, Exodus 26, verse 1. He says, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine uh, twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and you shall make them with cherubim scarefully worked into them. Let's look at the rest of these here and try to tie this together this morning. It says, you shall make uh, upright frames of the tabernacle of acacia wood. There it is. Ten cubits shall be its length. That's talking about how tall uh, of the frame. Uh, And a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. And that's amazing. So it's it's really, really large. Uh, Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Here's something else that I want you to see. Is that we were told um, that we are not to make idols, any graven images. Yet God says, what I want you to do is, I want you to put on the Ark of the Covenant two cherubim. Moreover, throughout the, think of it this way, the tapestry, the curtains you're to put in it cherubim, skillfully woven. Later we'll see where God literally put it on some of the people, He downloaded the ability for them to do it. Like right out of the Matrix movie. <laughs> and they were, just, they were able to do it. And it, would have, and it was divine. Wow. And He had them put these cherubim... <clears throat> throughout the curtains in the the tabernacle. Why? Why would God do that? Well, you go back into the Garden of Eden when we sinned and Yahovah Himself says, you know what? Mankind has become like us. Lest they take of the tree of life, we need to kick them out. And then what did he do? He put two cherubim in front of the garden, the paradise of God, to keep us out. So what is he saying with all this stuff with the cherubim? I'm bringing you back into the garden, into my presence. I'm trying to get you to see something here. This is a divine, heavenly pattern. I think He's trying to get us to see, if you'll pull that picture up again, just of the, one, the ark with the... He's trying to get us to see something. That when we were looking at, well, your average guy didn't see this after it was built and consecrated. Um, only the high priest would see that once a year. <clears throat> Moses would have seen it, but when you would see the tabernacle from a distance, and when you ever you would go in and go through some of the sacrificial uh, feasts and things that would happen, and you would see the cherubim on there, we are real. There's a reason God calls us sheep. We're real simple. We think we're all that, and we start worshiping things. We start elevating things. Uh, we start thinking, and I'm going to, well, man, things, I'm sorry, things fly through my head while I'm talking. People, they, they got it in their head even that if they would take the ark out, they would be victorious. Israel did. Why? Because we end up worshiping things and we forget what it really is, what it really stood for, and what happened? The Philistines captured it. Killed their army and captured it. And then they were like. All kinds of weirdness is happening. Don't touch it. You know we need to, we need to get rid of this thing. Uh, and because we're not supposed to worship the things. We're not supposed to worship our stuff. Even when God says build this. You don't worship what he said build. These were there to remind us. These are copies of the heavenly and what makes this so special is God dwelling in our midst and these cherubim were to remind us of the garden and what was so special about the garden what was so special about the garden was that God is the one that planted it it was his garden his place without God there is no garden without God it's not special Without God, there is no Garden of Eden. There is no paradise. There is no heaven. He is what makes it special. But we have a tendency to worship stuff. We worship stuff. We elevate elevate things above God. It's ridiculous. And God is constantly saying, no. (laughs) No. worship me. Just do what I say. I'm going to bless you. I want to bless you beyond your wildest dreams, but don't fall in love with the money. Don't fall in love with the fame. Don't fall in love with anything other than me and anything that has any value at all. It has value because of God himself, not because of that intrinsic, that thing in and of itself. You're sitting on refined dirt, chemicals and stuff that came out of the ground. you understand that? This building is nothing more than refined dirt. You're wearing refined dirt that became a plant that an animal ate, that we ate and took his hide and made a shoe out of it. It all still came out of the ground. Do you understand that? And we have a tendency to worship refined dirt. And God's like, no, I want you to worship Me, But don't break this covenant because this blood is showing you that sin brings death. But praise the Lord, Jesus took his blood, presents it, if you will, before the Lord, and God goes, it's all good. That's why after the millennial kingdom, there will not be any sacrifices. Everything will be made right. We'll have regenerated bodies. will be, if you will, back in the Garden of Eden. No sacrifices. Why? They won't be necessary. Sacrifices don't get you saved. Giving tithes to the church won't get you saved. Membership in a church won't get you saved or keep you saved. Is that clear? The only thing that will is a personal relationship with Him. Period. And the only way we have access to the Father is through the Son. Who purified the heavenlies so that when it comes time to be there, there was one sacrifice made and it was sufficient. Is that not cool? Now, um, there's a lot more that, that we could talk about in this because there's just tons in here. But what I want us to see is that our God is a God of order. And what he does is he takes chaos and he brings it into order. And He has a system and He has a plan and we have to follow that system. But even in our own lives, He takes our chaos and He brings it into order so that everything works. He takes the chaos that we created out of our sinful attitudes and goes, I'm not only going to pay the price for it, I want to bring it into order. I want to take the mess and I want you to understand that I want to take all of that that's ungodly, get rid of all of that and I want you to walk with me and I want to bring your life back into order according to His plan so that we can have the abundant life. That's why it says that Christ came that we might have life and have it what? More abundantly. That's what it's talking about, a life of order and watch this, rest. That we can rest with God And stop the chaos. That's why he even says, you know what? You even just need to rest once a week. You need to rest and be replenished. You know why? I made you. I know how it works. You need to rest. Stop. (laughs) And watch this. Focus on me. Focus on God one day out of the week. Rest. Why? He's taking the chaos, bringing it all into order. Does it with our sin? Does it with our lives? Does it with eternity? Does it with the physical realm? you feel like the world is in chaos? The chaos will get worse. Trust me. It will get much worse. But he will bring it all back into order. He will also allow measure for measure. If that's what you want, I'll give you what you want, but you're not going to like the result. And those that want to worship the demons, I think they're the watchers. He's going to say, no problem. I'm going to release them from their prison. Y'all have a nice time at the dance. That's what you wanted. I'm going to give them to you. And about I think it's somewhere around three-fourths of the world population will disappear in a -a three-and-a-half-year period. It will not be pretty. It will be extremely ugly. Um, But through all of that, just like Egypt, then he's going to say, I'm going to bring it all back into order. I'm going to deal with all the chaos. The land will get cleansed, if you will. I'm going to bring it all back into order and we'll have perfect order for one day, a Sabbath day, a thousand years. One day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And then at the end of that, he's going to release Satan and a whole lot of the people on the earth that have been here with Jesus, ruling and reigning from Jerusalem for a thousand years, will still side with the devil and try to attack him physically. Why? It's a heart problem. Just like the elders that had a meal with God are the same men and the same people that will go to Aaron and say, build us a golden calf. That's why he says, it's got to come from your heart. You either want God or you don't. You either love God or you don't. It's got to come from the heart and the heart first, not the outside back to the heart, from the heart first. And everything else comes out of the heart. So you either want him or you don't. And if you don't, he's like, I'll give you what you want. And if you choose to not want me, I will grant that request for all of eternity. I'm not going to send anybody to hell. You're going to choose to go there. You either want me or you don't. comes from the heart.